methane is responsible more for near-term climate change, but also it means that acting on methane can give us a short-term response to climate. So if we are trying to address climate change over the next decade or two, uh, methane is a very powerful lever. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. In this podcast series of conversations on policy and practice, nearly all of my guests over the time we've been doing it have been economists, political scientists, legal scholars, policymakers, or industry leaders. As I recall, only one guest before has come from the academic world of the natural sciences, and that was David Keith, a professor of applied physics in the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. But perhaps he doesn't even count because he's also a professor of public policy here at the Harvard Kennedy School. So today I am finally breaking the mold, and I'm pleased to be doing that because today we're fortunate to have with us Daniel Jacob, the Vasco McCoy Professor of Atmospheric Chemistry and Environmental Engineering at Harvard, and an expert and a world leader in the development of powerful inverse methods to infer methane emissions from satellite observations of concentrations. Now, we'll get into that later, but for now, let me just start by saying, welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Rob. Happy to be here. So before we talk about your research and its implications, let's to go back to how you came to be where you are, which I think will be of tremendous interest to our listeners. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Geneva, Switzerland. And does that mean that you went to high school and primary school there? Yes. And where where was that? In specific, in, in Geneva? In Geneva, yes. Uh-huh. And then where, where you went on to college immediately after uh, secondary school? Yes. I went uh, to a chemical engineering school in Paris. And you graduated from there in? 1981. In 1981. And then did you immediately go on to graduate school for the PhD? Uh, yes, I did. It was somehow brought together with my military service that I had to do. But yes, I went straight to graduate school at Caltech. So you immediately went to graduate school partly for the same reasons that when I graduated from college, I immediately joined the Peace Corps, it sounds like. Um, now, you went uh, to Caltech a long way away from Geneva and from Paris. Um, other than the fact that Caltech is known as you know one of the greatest universities in the world, in particular in the natural sciences. How did you go about choosing Caltech? How did that happen? Well, there was some history with this. Uh, I am a, a U.S. citizen, and uh, uh, my dad actually had done a postdoc at uh, Caltech, and mm -hmm. uh, he had very fond memories of the place. And uh, I wanted to do environmental research, and mm -hmm. uh, they have a very strong environmental engineering program at the time. 
Um, and so I viewed this as an opportunity to uh, study air pollution um, in a pretty unique environment for that. And then what was your dissertation on? My dissertation was on acid fog, uh, which was a wrinkle and the uh, air pollution problem that California experienced at the time and was somewhat linked to acid rain. So acid fog was a huge issue, as I recall, in London decades ago. Yes, that's, that's correct. Um, but we were uh, in a position uh, at the time at Caltech to try to understand the mechanisms driving acid formation in the fog. And we were hoping that in that way we would be able to make a connection to acid formation in rain and better understand acid rain. Uh-huh. And, and was that indeed the case, that you were able to make that connection? Yes, that was indeed the case. And uh, we were able, I mean, not just us, uh, but uh, the community in the 1980s uh, developed a very good understanding of how acid rain is, is formed to the point that uh, uh, now acid rain has uh, become more of a policy issue than a scientific issue, and, right. uh, and we've been doing much better now with, uh, with the problem. I mean, completing your work at Caltech in 1985, I believe, that was a fortuitous time because it was in 1988 that the process started of developing what were the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, including the very important and path-breaking allowance trading system to reduce SO2 emissions as a precursor of acid rain in the United States and Canada. Yes, uh, that's correct. So during the 1980s, when we had Ronald Reagan as president, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the mantra coming out from the White House was that more research was needed on acid rain before any policy action was taken. And then uh, when uh, George H.W. Bush got elected in 1988, you may recall that he said he would be the environmental president. Right. And uh, to make good on this promise, he pushed through a revision of the Clean Air Act that included provisions to address acid rain. Right. And that's something we've talked about in previous podcast conversations, for example, with Dick Schmalency, Professor Emeritus at MIT, who was at the Council of Economic Advisors in the George H.W. Bush administration and played a key role in uh, getting that legislation through the U.S. Senate, actually. So, uh, tell me, what was your first position out of graduate school? So out of graduate school, I went to Harvard as a postdoc. Um, I wanted to do more uh, global uh, atmospheric chemistry uh, research. I thought that was uh, something more for the future than looking at traditional air pollution issues. Mm -hmm. So your, your path sounds, you know, beautifully linear. So, so many times it seems people sort of bounce around, you know, from one topic to another, and then there's some serendipity that they get into something else. But it, se it seems like you've been targeted uh, and that one can understand very well why you're doing now what you're doing. Yeah, somewhat distressingly so. I mean, the only, <laughs> z the only zag that I did was that when I was at Caltech, I was mainly doing experimental research, uh -huh. and I discovered that it was absolutely no good at this. So I had to go more into theory and modeling. I see. And so this is what I went to uh, uh, at Harvard and uh, did as a postdoc. And, and the postdoc, was, was that in a specific department? Yes, it was uh, in uh, what was then the Division of Applied Sciences, right. working with uh, Mike McElroy, oh. um, who's still a professor at Harvard. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of that, you know, Mike is someone that I haven't had uh, on this podcast series, but that it would be interesting. In years past, I worked with him a great deal. There was a time in which, as you probably recall, that he was running the environmental programs at Harvard University-wide before I think Dan Schrag sort of took over that role. Yes. So um, you, your postdoc was a couple of years long, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I joined the faculty at Harvard in 1987. So this is quite remarkable. You come to Harvard as a postdoc in 85. You become an assistant professor in 87. You become an untenured associate professor at some point, And then you become a tenured full professor in 1994. Do I have those years correct? That's correct, yes. That's, that's a very impressive path. Thank you. So before we turn to your research on satellite measurements of methane concentrations and inference of methane emissions, let's talk more broadly about the importance of methane. And I say this because nearly all of our conversations in this podcast series, whenever we've talked about climate change and climate change policy, have focused on carbon dioxide emissions. But there are other greenhouse gases, an important one of which is methane. So tell me, how should we think about the relative importance of methane as a greenhouse gas? Oh, that's an excellent question, Rob. So uh, methane has a very much the same kind of climate effect as CO2. I mean, it's a greenhouse gas. And as you pointed out, there's a number of those greenhouse gases, and they all tend to have the same behavior as CO2. But a big difference is that methane has a shorter lifetime. So methane has a 10-year lifetime in the atmosphere because it gets oxidized, whereas CO2, it's complicated, but you can think of it as having, a, having about a 200-year lifetime. And so what that means is that methane is responsible more for near-term climate change, but also it means that acting on methane can give us a short-term response. To climate. So if we are trying to address climate change over the next decade or two, uh, methane is a very powerful lever. So when you say it has a 10-year lifetime, you're not referring to a half-life, but to rather virtually none of the methane still being in the atmosphere after 10 years? Um, you know, it's what we call technically an e-folding lifetime. If you mm -hmm. want to call it a half-life, I would say it's seven years. Okay, and then is it, this is essentially asymptotic to going to zero and it just drags out over time or does it not? That's is it right. really it, gone? Yeah, it's, a, it's an exponential decrease, uh -huh. so it drags out to zero, but over right. very long times. So in other words, if that's the case, then if one were to use as many uh, studies and graphs for that matter uh, in the policy world and in the policy literature tend to do, and that is to compare greenhouse gases in terms of CO2 equivalent, but on a hundred year basis. I've seen this over and over again. What's the result of that in terms of uh, possibly distorting the relative importance of methane? Yes, that's again a very, very good question. So the standard uh, metric uh, by which we compare CO2 and methane is with a 100-year global warming potential. Uh, and this is a very artificial metric. It, it, it basically 
calculates the integral of a radiative forcing uh, on climate from uh, over 100 years from methane versus CO2. And so when you do this, you find that methane has about the same climate effect as 25 CO2. So mm -hmm. uh, there's a, it's, it's a 25 CO2 equivalent, which means that if you uh, control one kilogram of methane emissions, it's the same thing as controlling 25 kilograms of CO2 emissions. But it's very misleading because the timescales are so different. Right. So if you were to use a 20-year uh, horizon instead mm -hmm. of a 100-year horizon, then methane would be 80 CO2 equivalents uh -huh. instead of 25. And even that, uh, even if you were to say, well, I care about climate change over a 100-year time horizon, this global warming potential is not the right way to do it. Because mm -hmm. if I emit methane today in the atmosphere, uh, then after about 10 years, it's gone, which means that 100 years from now, there will be no memory of a climate effect from right. that methane that I emitted today. Whereas if I emit CO2 today, the effect will linger on for a few centuries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very different. Now, now, everyone knows about the sources, uh, at least everyone listening to this podcast knows about the sources of... CO2 emissions, principally from uh, the generation and use of fossil fuels. What are the major sources of methane emissions? Well, there's a natural source from wetlands. Mm -hmm. uh, that's about one-third of the total source of methane right now. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds are sources from human activity. And those sources include livestock, mm -hmm. uh, and in particular cattle. Mm -hmm. um, landfills, mm -hmm. uh, wastewater treatment plants, coal mines, as you know, methane is generated in coal mines, mm -hmm. uh, oil and gas operations, and uh, rice paddies. Uh, those are the principal sources of methane. And, and what's the relationship between methane and what we're, we regularly refer to as natural gas? Natural gas is mainly methane. It's about 95% methane, typically. Okay. And what, what's the other uh, 5%? Oh, it's got a little bit of ethane, a little bit of higher hydrocarbons. So technologies for detecting methane concentrations via satellites have been improving over time. Uh, can you say briefly something about the history of these improvements? We have been able to observe methane from satellite for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. The first instrument was a European instrument called Schiamachi, and that mm -hmm. operated for about five years in the early 2000s. Um, and then uh, we've had a Japanese uh, instrument called GOSAT that was launched in 2010 and has been providing very high quality uh, data since then. Very high quality, but relatively sparse data. The kind of data with which we can look at uh, trying to understand methane emissions on maybe continental scales, but we have a hard time resolving individual countries or mm -hmm. individual oil and gas fields, individual landfills, uh, to get my drift. And then uh, in 2017, another European instrument called CHOPOMI uh, was launched. And that instrument is still going on, and it provides a global daily observation map of mm -hmm. methane. And so that provides a tremendous uh, 
resource for understanding of the sources of methane globally. Now, so with the satellites then, methane concentrations are being observed. But of course, what we care about for policy are methane emissions at during particular periods of time and specific from specific geographic locations, if not particular sectors. So can you explain to us how it is you go from satellite-based measurements of concentrations to estimates of emissions? That's a very complicated problem and something in which uh, my research group has made important contributions is that um, uh, between the time when you emit methane and the time when you observe it, there is transport taking place in the atmosphere. And as you know, transport is relatively rapid. I mean, we experience pretty strong winds. Um, and so what you need to do is to be able to interpret the concentrations that you observe from satellite in terms of the sources upwind at mm -hmm. various previous times. And this is what we call technically an inverse problem. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's, uh, there's quite a bit of, uh, uh, of intricacies uh, associated uh, with this. Uh, part of this has to do with the uncertainty in the transport. Part of this has to do with uh, noise in the satellite observations. Satellite observations are difficult to, to work with. Um, but ultimately, uh, we are getting uh, some very powerful results. So is it fair to characterize this, that you, you have measurements of concentrations, you combine that with some additional information historically about concentrations and emissions, and from this you statistically infer what those specific concentrations you measured tell us about emissions? Yes, that's correct. So what I do is I start off with what we technically call a prior estimate. That is, mm -hmm. say, this is what I think the emissions are. Basically, yeah. you know, the EPA is telling me how much methane, you know, the United States put out. Other countries tell us how much methane they put out. Okay, I'm going to take those at face value, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to transport them in the atmosphere with my model. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to simulate methane concentrations in this manner. Right. And then I'm going to confront those to what I actually observe. Mm -hmm. from the satellite. And I will try to interpret the differences in terms of errors in the emissions. And so the emissions may have to be changed. But you see, I have to be very careful mm -hmm. because when I see differences with what I observe, well, it could be that the observations might not be very good, or it could be that my atmospheric transport model may not be very good. So I have to be very careful. But this is where the intricacies come in. But ultimately, uh, what we can get from that is an improved understanding of the emissions. And then how, do you, how can you validate then whether or not your estimates of emissions, you know, to what degree they're, they're accurate or what the uncertainty bounds are around them? Ah, that's another, ex that's another excellent question. Uh, I will never take what comes out of these inversions of satellite data at face value. What I will do is I will then take some very accurate but sparse observations taken from the surface 
Mm-hmm. Uh, NOAA, for example, has a network of stations around the world taking methane uh, observations. Mm-hmm. And then I will simulate those observations with my model using the older methane sources that I, my prior estimate that I was referring to, and then my new estimates of emissions that I, that I obtained from the satellite. And then I will see which one is better and whether the satellite is providing a better representation of those very accurate observations. So, uh, so how, how would you compare then the uncertainty that surrounds your emission estimates from concentrations to the uncertainty of what I'll call conventional estimates of methane emissions, sort of adding up uh, you know, all the different engineering estimates from this source and that source, etc.? Well, my uncertainties will always be smaller than the uncertainties that are coming out of uh, um, those bottom-up prior mm-hmm. inventories. Um, and that's because I'm very careful before I bring in the satellite information. Um, so, in other words, I have some uncertainty estimates associated with those prior uh, emissions. And then I'm going to say, well, can I reduce those uncertainties with the information I get from the satellite? Mm -hmm. So these are not two independent ways of estimating emissions. Instead, Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is seeing whether the atmospheric observations can play a role in narrowing down the uncertainty. And I, and I should emphasize that this is extremely important, these estimates of uh, methane emissions differentiated spatially and temporally, because under the Paris Agreement, there is a need to assess, assess the national inventories that are reported. And then in addition to that, of course, there's now the Global Methane Pledge among 119 countries to cut global emissions 30% by 2030. And the challenge in both cases is a tremendous uncertainty regarding methane emissions, and you're addressing those challenges directly. Precisely. And then the other thing that we can do uniquely from satellite is to be able to look at recent changes in emissions. Uh, Because the inventories, the emission inventories that are coming out of individual countries are based on statistics that will typically be two or three years old. Um, But if we're going to try to change the emissions rapidly and to verify those changes in emissions, the only way that I can think of is to do it from from satellites. Uh So so what do you see as the future of this line of research? I'm thinking of this marvelous set of uh, postdocs who you, who I've had the pleasure of meeting who are working with you, but not just them, but then future postdocs you'll have, and then they're all going to go off and they're going to become uh, researchers in various locations. What do you see as the future line of this research? Where Where is it leading? Well, uh, from a policy standpoint, what I would like to see is uh, that we can contribute to continuous monitoring of emissions, Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to detect changes uh, in emissions, uh, particularly if uh, those are uh, correctable and point to the need for action. Say, for example, uh, if you have a flare that that goes off, uh, Mm -hmm. we should be able to to see it from space and then be able to take action on that. Uh, Some industrial accident, 
you know, be able to observe that, mm -hmm. but also to verify that individual countries are meeting their obligations under the Paris Agreement um, or collectively under the, the Global uh, Methane Pledge. Indeed. So, you know, s since uh, I brought up about your uh, postdoctoral fellows, who from my point of view anyway are extremely young people, um, I want to bring this to a close by asking you a much broader question about young people. Because, you know, as a professor, you have an opportunity to be around uh, such people all the time. But I'm thinking of even younger people than that. Something that we've observed over the last few years is a really what I'd call a youth movement of climate activism, most prominently with Greta Thunberg in Europe. But for that matter, it's students in the United States and throughout Europe and probably in many other parts of the world. What's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism? Well, I'm glad to see young people engaged. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of heartwarming because uh, you and I, I think, come from a generation where we were uh, politically engaged. And yes. sometimes yes. we are distressed to see uh, the youth of today being uh, somehow uh, uh, less active. But they definitely, uh, there definitely seems to have been something about you know, the climate movement that has taken a hold of, uh, of young people. Um, it's, it's difficult for me as a scientist to get really involved in the, mm -hmm. in the advocacy because right. there's a credibility issue that you try to maintain. And that's important that you're, that you're able to, to draw that distinction of doing, you know, your rigorous scientific research, maintain your credibility, while at the same time, possibly on a personal level, advi admiring the advocacy of some of these uh, young people, both in Europe and the United States and around the world. Yes. So listen, thank you very much, Daniel, for taking time to join us today. Rob, it's been a pleasure. Our guest today has been Daniel Jacob, who is the Vasco McCoy Family Professor of Atmospheric Chemistry and Environmental Engineering at Harvard University. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.com www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.